Good morning. Don't you love the sound of those violins? That music? Man, those lyrics from uh, John chapter 6, where Jesus is walking with his disciples after he has told everyone he's not just there to cast out demons and to provide food, but he's there to give his life as a ransom for many. And everybody leaves. And Jesus is walking down the road and he looks behind him and he sees his men following him, his 12, and he asks, why are you still here? And just like we sang, they respond, where else can we go? Where else would we get the words of life? One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. If you're not fired up already this morning, something's wrong. Take your temperature, find out, hit the old ticker, because uh, that should rev you up. That should get you fired up. Let's hear what God has to say in his word this morning. Welcome. I hope you have brought your Bibles with you, because we're going to be uh, jumping right into the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1. And I'm just giving you a fair warning. Uh, I'm going to be going to a much uh, fuller account of the same story in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14. So um, those of you who are at home, uh, I hope that you've got your Bibles open. If you're like me and you just heard me say that, you're probably sitting on your couch under your blanket with your cup of caffeine, and you're thinking, well, uh, do I really want to get up and go across the room and get my Bible? Uh, let me encourage you to do so with all haste. Get over there. Get that Bible. Let's get revved up. This is not a passive exercise when we come to get into the Word. It involves all of us together as a church body. Whether we're here or whether we're at home, well, we want to hear what God has to say to us because just as we sang, it's showing us Christ through the preaching of the Word. How amazing is that? So like I just said, I, I hope you were here last week when we kicked this off. Uh, we talked about the introduction to the book of Deuteronomy, how originally this is called the book of words, right? Because the first two words or three words uh, in the Hebrew here, Ella Hadebarim, are these words. These are the words uh, that Moses wrote, right? Uh, in fact, for Jews, the Old Testament title of this book uh, was actually Serif Debarim, the words. It wasn't until much later that it was given the title of Deuteronomy because there was a repetition of the law of the Ten Commandments that comes along just like in the book of Exodus. So they thought, we'll give it the Greek title of the second law. But I like the book of words. And what we really have here is a series of sermons by Moses that he's already given, right? He's at the end of his life. The time has come for him to depart from the scene of working with the Israelites. And someone has taken these sermons and they've knit them together with sections of narrative between each sermon. There's like five of them here. And today we're going to do a little bit of diving into the very first sermon that stretches from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4 of this book of words. So, let's get ready to do it. I'm going to start reading in verse 19, and we're going to go to verse 26, chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us. 
and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Keep that command in mind. We're going to come back to that. Do not fear. Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and to the cities in which it shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and they went up into the hill country and they came to the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Well, it's quite a story. Many of us, if you've been associated with uh, coming to church at all, especially in children's ministry, you know that we tell the story quite often of the spies going out into the land. That's our first point this morning. We're looking at the spies that have been commissioned by Moses uh, to go off into the promised land. The children of Israel have journeyed uh, from their exodus from Egypt, going through uh, Sinai, going uh, through the Red Sea, and so forth. And they've come to Kadesh Barnea, and they're ready uh, to make that journey around uh, through the wilderness of Paran, up to the Jordan River, cross the Jordan River, and take the land that God has promised them as part of his Abrahamic covenant, the covenant, the promise with Abraham, in which God promised the children of Israel as a whole, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you seed or descendants, and I'm going to give you a blessing, right? Land, seed, and blessing. And this is the land. They've been waiting for hundreds of years to get back here. Ever since their ancestors left that land, uh, it has been part of the promise, and I'm sure through many homes in Egypt, while they were slaves and while they were laboring so hard, feeling that perhaps God had forgotten them, that this covenant no longer existed, but the stories were probably still told in every home around the hearth, there is a promised land, and they're there. This has been a long journey. It's been incredible. We've gone through the 10 plagues, right? Right? We've seen Pharaoh's chariots get crushed by the waters of the Red Sea. We've seen the children come to the mountain where God seemed to dwell, where the clouds and the thunder and the lightning, and then there was the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led them. And now it's finally here. I'm not sure why Moses sent these guys. I think he felt it was a command of God, but he chooses one man from each tribe of Israel, and off they go. 40 days, they're gone. 250 miles, one way, right? They're going from the southernmost part of this land, the desert of Zin, part of the wilderness of Paran. They're going to go around, and they're going to go up, all the way up north to Libel Hamath. And then they're going to return. It's quite a recon mission, because that's in fact what it was, a recon mission. Uh, this was going to be a military conquest. The Canaanites were not going to willingly give up their land, their cities, their vineyards, their crops. And they were supposed to go in there with the faith of God. You see, the Canaanites, and sometimes people get very uh, disturbed about this, but the Canaanites were not worshiping God. They were idol worshipers. 
And everything that Moses is writing, and we're going to see this as we go through Deuteronomy, is going to be focused on the fact of preparing his people to go into this land. They worship the one God, Yahweh, Jehovah God. And we're going to take that message out there. And it's not an evangelism effort. That time has come and gone. This is a book of judgment. This, especially this first sermon of Moses, chapters 1 through 4, is a sermon of judgment. And so the 12 spies are gone. When they come back, they report, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. They bring back these huge grape clusters. What an encouragement. It takes us back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, when God first calls Moses to go and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says to Moses, I want you to do this, to free our people so that they can go to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. It speaks to abundance and productivity. As Moses heard these words from the spies coming back, saying, it's exactly as God said. I'm sure his heart must have leapt within him. However, things begin to go seriously wrong, right? These spies are reporting, not just to Moses and to Aaron, but they're reporting to the people gathered to hear. You can imagine their excitement. They've been waiting 40 days. Some were probably wondering if they were ever coming back. And here they come. And they want to hear just exactly what their future home looks like. And the spies make an unfortunate decision. If you look in Numbers chapter 13 and verse 28, they say, however, the people who dwell in the land are very strong and the cities are fortified and they're very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Put the appropriate emotional force in that. Don't just read this and try to trip over these proper nouns of these different people. Read it like they probably spoke it, right? And besides, we saw, and they start rattling off these people and the Amalekites, uh, the Hittites, and they talk about the Anak. And if you drop down a little bit further in that chapter 13, uh, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, like bugs. And so we seemed to them. That section starts off with the Hebrew phrase, epeski, which means, but wait. So they're saying, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. We have these grape clusters, and the people are getting excited, but the spies have probably decided ahead of time that they are going to put the spin on their report. Somewhere along this journey, they have decided to fear the people, the cities, uh, all of the land more then they feared Jehovah God. And they knew if they came back with too positive of a report, the people would be so excited that they were going to get ready to just cross that Jordan River and take their land. Ten of these spies were quaking in their sandals. They were so frightened that they were even willing to lie about what they see, uh, saw. It's not that they weren't 
you know, Jebusites and Hittites and Amorites. But the spin they put on, they say, we saw the people, the Anak. Now, the Anak are giant people, right? Not 15 feet tall, but they're probably descendants of people, much like we see with the story of David and Goliath. You might have a nine cubits high man, somebody that's seven foot, eight foot tall. In fact, we know that there are three of those men that are living there because this is going to come up again in Joshua chapter 14 when they actually do go in to con take the conquest of the land. But they're saying, we saw these giant people. We don't have a chance. And then they even go further in their spin on this. And they say, well, these people are like the Nephilim. Now, who are they? This is a reference back to Genesis chapter 6. We don't know much about who these people were, but we know that they were powerful and they were strong. They had an evil spiritual quality to them as it's reported in Genesis 6. But here's the truth, and everybody there knew it. The Nephilim had been killed in the great flood. They weren't around anymore. There wasn't anything to fear from them. But boy, if we can take what's the truth, the Anak, and we can make them look like the Nephilim, we're going to scare everyone so that they would never think of going into this, to this land. It's an evil, according to Numbers 13.32, it's an evil or bad report. Purposely making it evil so that the people would not want to go into the land. And they were successful. So that's how this story gets set up in this first part of Moses' sermon. He's reminding the generation that is ready to do the conquest, this is what happened to your parents. This is why the fateful decision was made not to go into the land. Because I sent 12 spies in there, of which 10 came back with an evil report. It was not good. Secondly, we want to look at the rebellion that occurred because of that. There was rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. In verses 26 through 33, we see this rebellion in full force. When people make the decision, it says, this is back in Deuteronomy 1, by the way, yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Moses is reminding them, this is what's happened. You have to put yourself in the context here. He's talking to the children of the first generation of freed slaves, right? They've just wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, 40 years. And even though I'm sure they heard the story, Moses is reminding him through his sermon, it's because you rebelled. Your parents rebelled against the what? the command of the Lord your God. And secondly, you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made, our brothers, by the way, are the spies. Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified. Where? up to the heavens. Um, I think they had good construction back in these days, but I don't think they had anything like the Tower of Babel or a modern-day skyscraper. It's just hyperbole. You know, when we get frightened, that's what we do, don't we? We see things that aren't even there. We add to what is actually there. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there, the giants. This was an evil report. 
It's a rebellion. At this point, these men, these spies, were denying the power and presence of God, the promise and assurances of God, their own resources. Now, think about what they've been through. They have seen God whoop up on the most powerful nation in the world in Egypt. Nobody was as powerful as Pharaoh in all of the known world. And God had taken these people right out from under him. Even though he didn't want it to happen, even though God hardened his heart time and time again, God removed them. In fact, the Egyptians were begging them to go by the time they left. And they hoarded all kinds of gold and jewels and uh, resources upon the children of Israel as they left, right? It wasn't until a little bit later that Pharaoh felt like he came to a census and decided to chase them down. But even with that, they had seen the waters of the Red Sea part. They had crossed upon dry ground. And when Moses put his hands back together, the sea waters collapsed upon the chariots of Pharaoh. They had seen all that. These people that are now talking about how terrible the Anakim are and how fortified their cities are, they were denying the assurances of God. It kept them from wanting to go forward. And they were even denying their own names. The children of Israel, they had names that meant blessing, God's man, uh, woman of God, and so forth. All of it was in uh, acknowledgement of their covenant relationship with the Most High God. They denied everything that they knew about their Lord. Numbers 14, verses 1 and 2, tell us how pervasive this rebellion is because there's three references right in the first two verses that give us a clue as to what's happening. It says, then all the congregation, now notice that, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept at night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Think about that. All of the people of the community. Moses is making this very clear as he writes this. This wasn't just a small little rebellion. This wasn't just the wives and friends and relatives of those 10 men reporting or giving the evil report. This was everyone. It was group madness. They were all willing to rebel against God. And the things that they say that I just read are horrific. God brought us out here to kill us. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Think of all the ways they could have died before they got to this place. If that was God's purpose, why wouldn't he have just done it? But no, God has brought us out here to kill us. He even wants to kill our children, to make them a prey. If we go into that land across the Jordan, it'll be our children that these Anakim seek to kill. The threefold emphasis on the extent of this rebellion is important for the judgment of God that's going to come here in just a second as we read through this will extend to the entire community. They're given over to wailing. There's not, this is not a scene of passive resignation, of silent regret. 
we are to imagine the worst sort of rage. I don't know if you've ever been in a group of people that are super angry. We saw some examples this past summer with protests and so forth. People mad. We'll put that here. It's a picture of screaming, rending, throwing, cursing anger. It's an intoxication of grief. These people are convinced that God has been up to something that they didn't understand until this very moment. God brought us here to just kill us, to wipe us out. And we want to go back to what? We want to go back to slavery? We want to go back to having to make bricks without straw? We want to go back to a nation that at this point, I'm sure, is pretty angry at them after what happened at the Red Sea, as if they could? Yeah, that's what they're saying. And they're just incensed, first at Moses and Aaron, and then secondly at God. The more the people cry, the more they outdo one another in their protests of rage. This is the pattern of crowd psychology that leads to riots, lynchings, stormings, rampage. Now they begin to aim their anger at Yahweh himself. I'm going to read chapter 14, verse 10 of uh, Numbers. It's one of the most uh, sobering verses in Scripture. It says, Then all the congregation said to stone them, Moses and Aaron, with stones, possibly Joshua and Caleb as well, who were the two of the 12 spies that went, who actually did not agree with the evil report. Uh, we're trying to calm the people down. Let's stone them with stones. And then here we go. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting, at the tabernacle, to all the people of Israel. Now, where does God reside at this point in his salvation history? Remember, God had instructed Moses, this is how you build the tabernacle, Right? We're going to have this great walled tent area, and in the middle of it is going to be the place where we're going to put the Ark of the Covenant, right, which contains the rod, the staff, the Ten Commandments, and so forth. And in the middle of the cherubim's wings touching, God's presence, his Shekinah glory will sit. No one was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, ever, except for the high priest, and that once a year. And he had to be perfectly purified because he was going into the presence of absolute holiness. He wore little bells sewn into the hem of his garment because if he had come in in an improper way, the holiness of God would just kill him. There was a long cane that was part of the tabernacle church equipment, if you want to think of it that way, that they reached in between the curtain folds, searching for the body of the high priest once those bells stopped tinkling, if they did, and then haul him out of there. There have been some that have recommended we do that with certain pastors, but I'm not going to go into that, okay? But it's a serious deal. And what happens in verse 10 here, and is what makes this such a sobering verse, is that God is coming. God is coming. 
He's coming out of the Holy of Holies. The people are raging, they're screaming, they're making all sorts of accusations against Moses and Aaron, possibly against Joshua and Caleb, but they're certainly making accusations against God himself. And all of a sudden, they don't have to wait for the ceasing of the tinkling of bells. Here comes the presence of God. And what do Moses and Aaron do? It says that they're laying prostate right upon the floor, right on their faces. And the people are probably wondering, what are these guys doing? We haven't even hit them with a rock yet. But I think Moses could tell he's coming. He's coming. And Aaron, always ever vigilant to watch his brother, thought, no, we better get on our face because I don't want to be included in this, whatever this is. So God comes out, and he's going to pronounce his judgment. He is furious. He is angry. 28 times, it says in the book of Deuteronomy, in different words, God was angry with them. In the book of Numbers, he says, 10 times I have put up with your rebellion. 10 times I have put up with you lying about my provision for you. And you can go through and try to figure out what those 10 are, right? Yeah, we don't have enough food to eat. God brought us out here to starve to death. And then manna comes down like dew on the grass. Well, we never get any meat. We're starving for some meat. Moses, what are you doing? You're crazy. You brought us out here. You didn't have any plans. You're going to just let us die. All of a sudden, quails were rushing to their dinner table, right? Here, eat some quail. Well, we don't have any water. We're going to die of thirst out here. This is a desert after all. And Moses struck the rock at Meribah, and water pours out. People were fickle. People were not faithful. God's presence come out. He has had enough of these people. And he doesn't speak to them. He speaks to Moses. And he says, all right. Now remember the last thing that the people said was, we're going to make a new leader. Let's stone Aaron and Moses to death. And then we'll elect a new leader from amongst us who will lead us in a proper way. Who knows what that meant? But God has his own plan. And he says to Moses, you know what? I'm going to just destroy all of them. I've had it with them. And that's no joke. God doesn't make false promises. He doesn't threaten for the sake of effect. He meant it. He'd had it. And Moses gets into this little debate with God and says, no, don't do this. And God says, hey, Moses, don't worry. I'm going to keep you and Aaron, and I'm going to raise up a new people, and you'll be the head of them, Right? This will be a better people, somebody that will actually follow my dictates, my commands. And Moses says, don't do this, because Egypt will hear about it, and there will be a mockery of your name in the whole world. Because you see, the battle here was as much against the people who lived in these lands, but it was much more about the gods that they worshipped. And each of those plagues that happened in Egypt was an effrontery to a god of Egypt, right, of the Egyptians. And so Moses said, don't do that. Well, that didn't calm God down completely, but obviously he decided, 
I'm not going to destroy all of them, though he could have, right? Numbers 14, verse 11 says, how long will these people treat me with contempt? That's what Jehovah is saying. How long will these people treat me with contempt? This is the central issue. By refusing to believe in the power of the Lord, especially in view of all the wonders that they had experienced themselves, the people of Israel are holding God in contempt by their unbelief. Do you ever think about that way? When we choose not to believe in God, when we don't have the faith to take that next step that God has clearly shown to us, we're actually holding God in contempt. How long will these people hold us in contempt? Oh, man. Let's read what God's going to say now in verses 28 through 35 of chapter 14. Notice the tenor of these words. And this is in Numbers again. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in the wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, no one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, God's taken their own words. You said, oh, you know, God brought us out here to kill us and to make our children a prey to the people who lived on the other side of the Jordan. God now says, and what you said, I heard what you said, You have the audacity to say that I would kill your children after all that I've done for you, but your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in to the land, and they shall know that land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years, and it shall suffer for your faithlessness. I don't know about you, but I find it much more difficult to watch my children suffer for something that I've done that is stupid than for me, myself, being punished. The threat of knowing that my children are going to have to pay the price for something that I did that was wrong. He says, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, You shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, I kind of think of the Wizard of Oz at the end there, right? I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all. This wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. I mean, even when you read this in the Hebrew, it's abrupt, it's it's coarse language. It's it's frightening. Uh, you know, we're trained to bring the gospel into every message that we preach. And to be honest with you this morning, as I read this, I'm thinking, yeah, there is a gospel message in this. There is a promise of redemption. 
And it happens with the children of Israel over and over and over again, right? They sin, they're cursed, they're redeemed. They sin, they curse, they're redeemed. But for this generation, they're going to die. They're going to die. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be this lost generation? I mean, you've just been told that none of you are going to live longer than 40 more years. Let's say you're 38, and you were part of this rebellion. You're a man. You know that you, at max, have 40 years left, right? 38 plus 40, 78 years. It's not like, well, I wonder if I'm going to live to be 88. I wonder if I'm going to live to be 81. You could die sooner. Maybe that would be even grace. But you're not going to live longer. God says you're going to die. And you're going to be buried under the sand. The sand is going to cover you. This wilderness, you know, here's Kadesh Barnea. We were going to go right around through the wilderness of Paran up to the Jordan River. And then with God's grace, we're going to come through there. And we are going to just take over this land. We see that in the book of Joshua with the conquest. But now from Kadesh Barnea, instead of going to the east and around, they're just going to turn left to the west. And they're going to wander and wander and wander. Their children are going to hear this story. I'm sure it became a topic in most tents. Tell me again, Dad, why you didn't believe God? Why we're stuck out here doing this? Tell me again. I, I'm just having a hard time believing because you've already told us the stories about the other things that were so great and wonderful that God had done for you. Why? I'm sure they had a tough time explaining it. It would be so hor horrible. You're the last surviving man, perhaps, from this generation. Forty years have passed. People must have been watching your every breath. When's he going to die? We can't go into the land until he's dead. Does anybody have a scorpion? Come on, go got to get rid of this guy. You know, they're just waiting for this to happen. Oh, to live with that judgment of God upon you. To know that you're the one that turned hearts against God and caused God's people to anguish and torment. I don't think death could have come soon enough. Just living those 40 years was a judgment. Well, rebellion, it has a cause and effect. I hope you're seeing that as this pattern is laid out in Moses' sermon. There's an evil report, right? It's a lie. Someone's come to you and said, well, we can't do this. It's not going to work. And we have our eyes focused where? Not on God, but on the obstacles in our path. And we're immediately forgotten everything that God has done that is good to us. We've forgotten his power, his strength, his sovereignness, his Shekinah glory. And we're instead going to go to where we think it's safe. It's an evil report that leads to murmuring intents, gossip untruths. Churches can do this, right? Something bad happens, or we think it's bad, and people start gossiping. Oh, this is what's happening, you know. God wasn't in charge. He took the day off on that day. He wasn't here. 
our leaders, they're, they're leading us in the wrong way. We've we got to get rid of them. We're not going to necessarily pick up stones, but we have our ways, right? That leads to hearts melting in fear, as it says here. We don't have the stomach for this anymore. We're, we're frightened. Let's go someplace where they don't ever have these kind of problems. Let's just satisfy ourselves, which leads to the demand to go back to our old way of life. And some people, they don't just stop at wanting to go back to the way the faith community was previously. They want to go so far back, they're going even beyond when they first came to know Christ. Life wasn't so full of problems and hiccups. I didn't run into so much opposition in things before I was a believer. And we accuse God of evil. We hold him in contempt. And that is when judgment really happens. When I studied this passage in preparation for this sermon, I found myself just wanting to weep for these people. To weep for them. I don't know if there's any place clearer in Scripture where you see a people who have been blessed and blessed and blessed who just really without any kind of push turn their backs on God. I think it was in their hearts all along. I don't think they had the stomach for this in the first place, and God knew it. But he had to wait until they condemned themselves. They turned their back on God, and they suffered the consequences for it. Die in that desert. Stray in that wilderness. I've had people say to me so many times, I'm in God's hallway. I'm in a waiting room. I, I, I've been praying and praying and asking God where I should go and what I should do, and he doesn't seem to reply. He doesn't seem to answer, and I'm sick of waiting for him. I'm even beginning to doubt if he exists. That's where the Israelites were. And when God comes out of his holy of holies, and you feel him coming, you do what Moses did. You get down on your face and you pray. There's a neat little chart I have on Caleb. I'm not going to take time to go through all of that. But I want you to understand that there was a bright spot here, right? This man, Caleb, four times it says that he was completely filled with Yahweh. Oh, I'd want that for myself. Oh, I so bad want that for me. But what did he have to do to get through all that? It's amazing. When you look at Joshua chapter 14, He's 85 years old, and he's at the city gates of Hebron, where these Anakim live. And he begs Joshua, let me go up there and take them. Maybe the Lord will have mercy on me, and I'll beat these giants. Even as an old man at 85, he's still kicking it for Christ. Guys, don't Kadesh it, right? In our lives, let's not rebel. Let's not turn our backs on God. I'm just going to end by saying this, right? God has time and the wilderness has sand. Even for us, God has time and the wilderness has sand. As Jesus said, if you have ears, let yourselves hear it.